Vintage jeans you can buy on Retro Row are cool. Vintage policies that exacerbate the racist prison industrial complex are not. Hello and welcome to the show, folks. You're listening to City Council Meeting Notes on KLBP, Long Beach Public Radio. My name is Kevin Flores, editor at Forth.org, and I'm joined by my co-host, Emma DiMaggio, the managing editor of the Signal Tribune. Howdy. So we just heard one of the more creative public comments addressing the council during last month's budget hearings. One of many calling for the police budget to be slashed in favor of funding community programs. Spoiler alert, the police budget was actually increased, but we'll get into all that in a minute. First, Emma is going to talk to us about municipal waste and not the band. And she's also going to talk to us about city pool, the possibility of more city pools in North Long Beach. Long Beach trash fees are expected to double in coming years as the city works to comply with Senate Bill 1383, a state law that requires cities to divert organic materials from their waste stream in an attempt to combat climate change. Organic waste in landfills emit 20% of the state's methane, a super pollutant that is 84 times more potent than carbon dioxide. The bill was signed into law in 2016 and will take effect on January 1st, 2022, but there is a problem. Southern California does not have the capacity nor the infrastructure to deal with the region's organic waste, and Long Beach is not expected to meet the state deadline. Here's staff speaking on some of the challenges during an August 3rd special meeting of the Long Beach City Council. As I highlighted some of the challenges, one of our bigger challenges is um, limited access and availability to manage organic material. Another challenge we're gonna face is that the cost for the collection and processing of organics is, is high. For instance, cost for trash trucks, or as we might call them in the future, or organics trucks, are increasing. There's also increasing cost for those uh, outdoor collection containers, and there's limited supply. We're at a really unique point in time where we have high demand and limited, limited supply. There's also an increased workload to get through this uh, legislation. Many city departments, while they now have customized work plans of what they need to do, they have stressed to us that they don't have the staff or the capacity to actually implement what is in their work plan. As mentioned, or not as mentioned, but to share, there is no direct funding to support this implementation. There are a few key pieces of legislation focused on alloc allocating funding to cities for cities um, or to push back the timeline. However, nothing has been passed. City staff were joined by representatives from CalRecycle who said that they expect leniency from the state given the effects of the pandemic. In brainstorming how Long Beach could comply with the law, city staff toyed with the idea of shipping the waste out of, to out-of-state facilities that could better handle the organics. Currently, most regional facilities only handle recycling or organic waste individually. If the city can't find a place that processes both, it may be forced to add an additional bin, further escalating costs for residents. Some council members expressed hope that help, particularly funding, would come down from the state to help cities come into compliance. Here's council member 
Al Austin. Good presentation, but bad news in a lot of ways. Um, I think this uh, legislation was uh, well intended and in many respects necessary, uh, understanding where we have to uh, reduce greenhouse gases and, and, and we have this, this issue of uh, climate change uh, facing us right now. And so I understand the, the impetus behind the legislation. Um, but obviously it comes at a, a passing on a major cost and an operational challenge to, uh, to the city and to cities across uh, the, the state. Um, we being a larger city, uh, I think it's probably more of a burden to be able to, to um, implement um, the, 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 the points of this legislation without some help from Sacramento. Signal Hill, on the other hand, is expected to come into compliance in 2022. On August 24th, the Signal Hill City Council approved rate increases of 40 to 60% for its residents to help pay for additional recycling services. The state's long-term goal is to reduce organic waste disposal by a full 75% by 2025. So Emma, the city has known about this looming deadline um, since the bill was passed in 2016 by the state legislature. Why hadn't the city addressed this sooner instead of waiting till the literal last year before they have to comply? Um, From what I could tell in the meeting, they actually planned on presenting this in early 2020 but the presentation was delayed. Um, They did start a food scrap program earlier this year for commercial businesses, but still there is an extreme delay on their plans for implementation. It could be due to a number of the challenges that they um, enumerated above. All right, so shifting gears, um, one of the other notable items that the city council addressed in August uh, had to do with the possibility of creating uh, new public pools in North Long Beach. What do you got for us on that? So the city of Long Beach will study the feasibility of creating a public pool in North Long Beach after unanimous approval by the city council at its August 3rd meeting. The move comes amid criticism over the revitalization of the Belmont pool, an $85 million project in the city's wealthiest neighborhood. The Belmont pool is funded through Tideland's oil funds, which can be used in certain areas, particularly coastal areas. Um, Potential funding sources for a pool in North Long Beach remain unknown. Vice Mayor Rex Richardson, who proposed the item, noted that the Northside 90805 zip code, which includes portions of District 8 and District 9, has the most children out of any other zip code in Long Beach. Despite this, residents in this area live on average four and a half miles away from the nearest public pool, which is further than any other zip code in the city. Currently, three pools do exist in North Long Beach, but none of them are public. Here's Rex Richardson on the proposal. This is a climate issue. It's a neighborhood quality issue. It's a quality of life issue. It's an investing youth issue. It's an equity issue. It's time for us to you know, put a flag in the ground, ask city staff. And what my ask is today is that we begin the process, do the feasibility, look at some potential locations that is feasible, look at what costs may be, strategies to get it as a priority in the CIP, funding strategies, state, federal, local, um, and present uh, some opportunities to put the council in a position to close this, this longstanding gap. The proposal came just days after a video was circulated on the Nextdoor app where young children were seen playing in the pool of an apartment complex. 
Off to the side, a man warned the children that he'd be forced to call the cops if they did not leave the area. Here's what Renette Maas of the Hamilton Neighborhood Association had to say about that video during public comment. And I think the poll is the next step in the resources for our youth toolbox. And uh, I submitted that video. It was taken at 5500 Ackerfield. It was five or six children just playing in a pool. And I guess it had a profound effect on me because I saw children having to break the law to enjoy resources and benefits that other people in our area may take, not in our area, but in our city, in areas of our city that they take for granted. So just want to say that again. Children had to break the law, jump a fence, get threatened by the police to play in a pool. And that area at 5500 Ackerfield is very close to Ramona Park. Um, this neighborhood or this apartment building has had these break-ins consistently for years. And I don't know how police would feel having to go and arrest kids for playing in a pool, but it's, it's embarrassing that we don't have these resources in our neighborhood. The council will receive a report back on the feasibility of the pool in the coming months. The pool was listed as a priority project for funding in the fiscal year 2022 budget. 2021 year-end surpluses could make the project a reality, but those surpluses are not yet known. So um, apart from having the highest concentration of children in the city, North Long Beach also has the highest concentrations of Black people. So there's certainly a racial dimension here as well, right? Definitely. A lot of council members also noted that this lack of pools means that these historically underserved populations, the majority of which are communities of color, face severe barriers to any sort of aquatics education, swimming lessons, participation in aquatic sports. This is all happening in Long Beach, where coastal access is, as council members often call it, our most valuable city asset. You're listening to KLBP 99.1 FM, Long Beach Public Radio. After the break, we'll talk about what made it into the 2022 budget and what didn't, plus a conversation with James Suazo of Long Beach Forward. Stay with us.
I'm Kevin Flores, editor of Fourth.org, and I'm joined by my co-host Emma DiMaggio, managing editor at the Signal Tribune, and you're listening to City Council Meeting Notes on KLBP 99.1 FM. The council last month all but adopted the city budget for fiscal year 2022, with a final formal vote expected to take place later this month. So today we're going to break down exactly what's in the budget and what's not. We'll also be talking to James Suazo of Long Beach Forward about this year's people's budget. The council tentatively approved the city's $3 billion budget last week, uh, apart from the fact that every city department saw a bump in their piece of the pie. It looks a lot like last year's budget. There are no cuts or shortfalls, and that is due solely to the emergency pandemic funds the city received from the federal government and the states. Now, the bad news is that those relief dollars will only plug the holes temporarily, and the next few years are projected to see some pretty brutal deficits. We're talking a $36 million shortfall in fiscal year 2023 and $11 million in 2024. Here's city manager Tom Modica. Essentially, FY22 is balanced, uh, but the shortfall from this year gets pushed forward. So that's that $27 million. And so in the FY23, it's uh, currently projected at $36 million, And then we have an $11 million in 24 deficit and another nine in 25. And so these are all projections. They change. Revenues go up. Revenues go down. Expenses go up. Expenses go down. Uh, but this is the what we know today. Okay, so what's in the budget exactly? For one, there's the $250 million Long Beach Recovery Act, which is almost like a mini budget inside of the whole city budget. Uh, These funds will go towards a whole host of things to help pull Long Beach from the edge of pandemic disaster. Uh, There's money for tenant assistance, uh, replenishing reserves, and direct grants to businesses. From a bird's eye view, the police department is getting about $262 million, uh, with 42% of the general fund going to police. The fire department will have a budget of $117 million, while public works will get $47 million. The health and human services budget, meanwhile, will be getting about $5.8 million. The city will also be investing about a million dollars into the city's youth fund, Uh, And with another $200,000 going to the Ethics Commission and $200,000 going to help shore up the Bixby Knowles Business Improvement Association. Uh, But it's a $16 million increase to the police budget over last year that that got the attention of virtually all of the people who made it out to City Hall to comment during the budget hearings. Following the murder of George Floyd and the wave of anti-police brutality demonstrations last year, there's been a growing effort by community groups in Long Beach to pressure the city council into cutting back on police spending and instead investing more money into things like housing, mental health services, and language access. So let's go ahead and listen to some of the comments addressing the city council throughout the budget hearings in August. Why, after a year of community advocating for the funding of police, and the reallocation of funds back into our communities where they belong, is the city council yet again proposing a disgustingly drastic increase to the police budget? Do our constant rallies and protests, do our personal testimonies of police brutality and terrorism fall on deaf ears? So this budget go round, I urge you to listen to the community. We have told you what we needed. We've told you every year with the people's budget, 
We told you last summer during and after the uprisings after George Floyd's murder. We told you through our many complaints against the complaints against and challenges to the LBPD processes. So this year I asked the city council to do, do something different. Listen and act accordingly. Support the programs that care for our community and make it better. Stop overfunding LBPD at the expense of the community needs just because that's what you've always done. We can fund public safety by addressing root causes of violence, funding affordable housing, education, jobs programs, healthcare, youth programs, actually addressing poverty. Now, the most recent counter narrative to the defund the police movement um, has been that there's a spike in crime nationwide and in Long Beach specifically, a rise in shootings. And to deal with that violence, more police officers are needed, not less. However, there's a few things worth mentioning here. Um, From January to July, there was a 33% decrease in shootings, despite an increase over last year, uh, according to the police's own numbers. We also need to take into account that last year we were in the thick of a generational public health crisis. So that's going to skew conclusions about crime levels when drawing comparisons between crime stats across years. Uh, And of course, any rise in crime needs to be seen in the wider context of being in an era of historically low crime rates. Violent crimes in the city are down 75% since 1991. In any case, despite the dozens of public commenters urging the city council to slash the police budget, the council went ahead and approved what amounts to a 6% increase to the police budget. Here's second district council member Cindy Allen, who is we should also note is a former LBPD officer. One of the things that we have seen is, you know, the crime rate has continued to increase in our neighborhoods. And we see that in the data. I don't think that it's a good idea for us to live with any fewer officers. Um, It's just putting more strain on the officers that are currently out there. The final vote on the budget is expected to take place on September 7th, and the new fiscal year will begin in October. I think it's also worth noting that we saw tons of people attend the meeting and voice their support, not just in divesting from the police, but of the people's budget in particular. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so good question. The people's budget is an annual list of demands for the city budget put together by a coalition of of community groups. This year, its central demand was to cut a quarter of the police's budget and reinvest that money uh, into community programs and things like affordable housing and um, violence prevention programs such as youth mentoring. To learn more about the people's budget, I I spoke with James Suazo, the executive director of Long Beach Forward, um, which is one of the many community groups that was advocating for the adoption of the people's budget. Hi, James. Uh, Thank you for being on. Thanks for having me. So for listeners who aren't super familiar with the people's budget, can you briefly tell us how it's put together each year and more importantly, why it's created? Yeah, absolutely. So the people's budget is our uh, yearly campaign and actually it's something that happens year round um, and is the result of community members, a number of community-based organizations, including Long Beach Forward, Long Beach Immigrant Rights Coalition, Long Beach Residents Empowered, and many, many others um, coming together to look at how we could actually push for community-led solutions and actually focus our city's public dollars on equitable solutions. So things like 
um, community land trusts, affordable housing, um, language access, deportation defense for immigrant um, residents, um, and a whole host of other things, investments in youth programming, um, and really focusing and having a conversation about how bloated our city's general fund goes towards um, very punitive, harmful practices such as policing um, and actually how we can create more effective versions of community safety, of um, violence prevention by actually focusing on the root causes that cause harm and violence in the community. So things like basic access to services, healthcare, um, uh, housing, and all of these other issues that day in and day out folks are dealing with. And so we're really interested in coming together as we have in the past four years now, there's four year, um, every year we put together a people's budget um, that's rooted in these community values and solutions to really talk about how could we reimagine our city budget, even like city services in a way that's oriented towards equity and justice. And I think fairness for folks who historically have been left out of budget, public decisions and budgets and resources um, over the past you know, generations in Long Beach. So there were about $107 million in uh, funding demands uh, that were included in the people's budget this year uh, for you know many of the things you just mentioned, housing, mental health services, language access, youth programming. Uh, how much of that was adopted into the city budget? Yeah, I mean, for the, our demands that were lifted up in the people's budget, there were some real tangible wins. And I think investments that we saw as a result of people coming out and organizing and pushing for these solutions. So for instance, we saw like a $1 million investment in community land trusts, and that's about establishing community owned permanent affordable housing. We're talking about building generational wealth outside of just subsidized affordable housing, right? In the traditional market sense, a um, million dollars for housing navigators. And we're really pushing the city to um, look at this as the our steps forward towards a rental housing division. Because of this pandemic, we have, um, the first ever renter protections on our books locally that are a huge relief for tenants um, who are facing, you know, slumlord conditions, things like that. And uh, we're hoping to, you know, we've never had city staff before who are like dedicated to solely ensuring that like those things are being enforced um, and that tenants have resources. So um, a $1 million investment towards that is a huge step. Um, we also saw $810,000 for a tenant right to counsel program. So um, tenants who are in disputes or face with landlords or facing eviction can provide, get uh, legal resources and services um, for their defense. Um, $700,000 for language access policy implementation. So we're talking about ensuring equitable access to city meetings, documents, services, and Spanish Kamayan Tagalog. Um, you know, and then like 600,000 for the Long Beach Justice Fund to continue providing the free legal um, universal representation to immigrant residents who are facing deportation. So, you know, and there's a number of other um, investments as well in terms of like some of the racial reconciliation pieces and the mental health um, alternatives um, for houseless outreach and, and whatnot. I mean, I think the biggest piece that, you know, we were really pushing for as part of the people's budget and has been consistent in our in our past years, even before this past summer's uprisings is really looking at how do we not just simply invest in these equitable solutions, but how do we actually look at reallocating resources that are going into the Long Beach Police Department and reallocating those funds into ways that we know keep us safe, right? And so unfortunately in this budget cycle, we didn't see any kind of reallocation or divestment from the police department into some of these priorities. 
um, we actually saw an increase in the police department budget um, by 16 million. And so, you know, I think it's important for us as a as community members and folks who are organizing on this to lift up, these are really important investments that are actually going to reverse a lot of the um, the damage and the harm done in communities. These are really amazing programs, and at the same time, we it will only be limited as such as so long as we continue um, investing in the police department or giving even more funds and having this larger structural conversation and action around what um, an equitable public investment looks like. Right. So just as you mentioned, to meet these uh, funding priorities that were outlined in the people's budget, uh, it, it also called for a $65 million cut from the police department. And, and if I'm not mistaken, that's the largest cut the people's budget has ever asked for from the police department. Um, why $65 million? And how do you respond to council members who came out and said that that number is just not feasible? Right. Well, I think you're correct. This is the first time in our people's budget that we've really looked at quantifying a number of what a, a tangible cut from the police department. And to put that in perspective, we're talking about a proposed 65 million cut from the police department out of their $262 million budget, right? So we're not even talking about half, right? So I think in perspective, if we're talking about, you know, is 65 million a large number, it also for us is about a conversation about what are our police, what is our police department charged with and what are they doing? There were a number of council members on several of the budget night votes who talked about how the role of our police officers is overwhelming and they are tasked and expected to do so much above and beyond um, their, their job. And, you know, unfortunately to us, a lot of the answers from council members was, well, what does self-care look like, right? And for us, there's no conversation about self-care unless we're really looking at why are our police department and police officers and when responding to mental health crises, responding to evictions, responding to all of these root causes in the community that um, policing should not be the solution to. And so for us, you know, when we talk about like, it's just too much. And then um, for us, it is not about having a conversation about the numbers and dollars and cents, because from the time this budget was proposed to the time it was approved, we found an additional, um, you know, $100,000 for Bixby Knowles um, to save the Bixby Knowles Improvement Association, right? So we can have a conversation about dollars and, and since the end of the day, but that's not the conversation we want to have. We want to fundamentally talk about what is a uh, what does actual investment look like? And truly, if we're being responsible with our tax dollars, if we're being responsible about the long-term sustainability of this budget, um, we also had conversations about deficits in the coming um, in the coming years. Then pouring additional funds into the police department when they are trying to solve solutions that they are not equipped for does not make any dollars and cents. Um, common sense. Uh, so, of course, the budget um, that is expected to be formally adopted by the city council this month. Uh, like you mentioned, increases the police budget by roughly $16 million. And that's on top of an extra $5 million the council recently gave you know, the police to um, help them bolster their public safety plan. Um, so, you know, at least on this point, it doesn't seem like the council was really willing to budge. Um, why do you think that is? I mean, I think it's a nuanced uh, answer. I think on the face of it, right, there is a real values question as to how we want to structure and build out our city in terms of how we prioritize not just our public investments, but also um, you know, the way we really challenge power structures within the city. And I think the city budget is absolutely that, that, um, 
vehicle where we do that. So for instance, right, there's this process where the city manager, we are, we are governed by a city manager, right, who is responsible and reports to the city council and the mayor. Um, but the city manager is the one who really constructs this budget. And then it's the city council that puts approval on the final, you know, the final adopted budget, right? And so I think there are still real structural reckonings that need to happen around like, what is it that community safety really looks like in terms of our city in the city of Long Beach, right? And so I think there there is a legitimate values question there, right? And, you know, we've had a lot of community members who've been part of this campaign who have been very direct with their city representatives and city council members about like, this is what investment looks like to me and this is what public safety looks like to me, right? And there is just a fundamental disagreement about, well, I think that we still need a very strong police force, right? And are not willing to make a reduction. There was also in this time, and this is not a Long Beach specific issue. This is something that the communities across the nation have been dealing with. The reality of like, because of the lack of a strong social safety net or any real, you know, and to be honest, protections against COVID and at the national level, we're seeing a huge um, bump or we're seeing a bump in um, shootings and violence in, in the neighborhood, right? Our answer to that cannot be policing, right? And so I think there was definitely this narrative and this fear mongering that was, we can't do anything to reduce the police budget because of violence going on, but no willingness or conversation to say, well, why is this happening in the first place, right? And what if we actually focus on the root causes of gun violence or things like that, rather than just putting a band-aid in terms of more police response? I think the second piece that we also have to acknowledge is that the police department and specifically the, the police officers association, they have been some of our most vocal opponents very publicly about, against the people's budget and these conversations around divestment from the police department and have resorted to fear mongering tactics to say that any reduction and even a dollar reduction to the police department results in more higher rates of crime, right? And so, you know, for us, it's really important to call out these fear tactics, these Trumpian tactics, um, because they really pry on people's anxieties and fears and the worst of ourselves in this pandemic. Um, but our city council, when we have they, when they are responsible to this part of the electorate, or they feel like they need to be responsible to this part of the electorate, we're going to see a lot of different kind of actions than I think people would ideally like to see. Right, and 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 let, let me shift a little bit more to just the process how, of how this budget was um, was voted on by the council. So, so this year's budget process was a little bit more abbreviated than in previous years uh, with fewer hearings. There was fewer departments that actually presented um, in front of the council. Uh, mm -hmm. can, can you talk about whether this had any effect on the ability of community members to advocate for changes in the city's proposed budget? Yeah, yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up because I mean, just for context for people who might not be familiar with the budget process, in reality, the budget process is year round. There is never not a moment when the budget is being discussed internally within the city. Um, traditionally in the past, we've seen the budget process be a little bit more um, public in terms of the lead up into July and then a full public process in in the entirety of August and sometimes into September, depending on those conversations. And so this year's process, which from the get-go, one of our, our tenants of the, the people's budget has been that we really wanna not just look at authentic and real community engagement of uh, individuals who live in the city in the public budget budgeting process, but really like it is not equitable to expect 
anyone in our community to digest a 250 plus page budget document, right? And understand the nuances in and out of that. And we've raised these issues in terms of the access and structure of community meetings, even at budget hearings and whatnot. And so um, to have this very extremely shortened process that happened this go around with this budget cycle was a real challenge for us in terms of not even um, in terms of engaging people, um, in terms of the pace at which things moved, a lot of community members highlighted during their public comments the fact that like we're not even hearing every budget department who's part of this budget present or have that opportunity for public comment and engagement. Um, and so, you know, for us, it was really disheartening to see not only was there not not only was there no political will around some of these larger structural demands, but that the overall face of how people were received in this process was that we're really not prioritizing public comment. We really want to get this done. And I think there's going to be consequences to that. I think people intimately, when people feel disengaged from a process, that's never good. Um, and I think that will definitely be a challenge moving forward and thinking about, you know, how do we actually have any faith that we're going to see real public investments and have meaningful engagement where people's voices are valued, where people want to, like our city leaders actually want people to be part of the process instead of like very performative methods of engagement or input gathering. And looking forward, city officials are projecting some pretty significant budget shortfalls in the coming years, which they've indicated could result in service cuts. Uh, are, are you afraid that this could wipe away the gains that the People's Budget Coalition has made over the years? I have no doubt that, you know, when it comes to, I mean, we look back at history, you know, not even just within Long Beach, but in any kind of like major city um, or urban area, when there are cuts that need to be made, low income folks, um, the social safety net, those are the types of audiences and programs and services that are usually on the chopping block first. I have a lot of faith that there are people in the Long Beach community who are very knowledgeable because of these past, the People's Budget Campaign, because of these processes, because of this collective consciousness that we've gone through in terms of not just looking at city budgets, but also how we value Black lives, how we, you know, look at instituting equity, social justice, fairness within our own community, um, that we're not going to go down without a fight. And I think that people really, um, have been able to engage in a way that is truly authentic to them. And people are noticing and people feel that very deeply. And so any kind of cuts, you know, I welcome the conversation of a budget deficit because I actually know a department in the city that has a lot of money um, at its disposal. So, you know, we'll continue to say that like, hey, that's a great starting point. We're offering you some real community-led solutions and where we can, you know, look at um, reducing some of those funds. And so, we know it's going to continue. It's not a one and done kind of campaign. And this is an ongoing effort to really focus folks um, year round around how we actually can best use and redistribute our public dollars to actually support the public good. All right. We're going to have to leave it there. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us, James. Yeah. Thanks for having me. That was James Suazo, Executive Director of Long Beach Forward. And that's our show for this month, folks. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, remember, the City Council meets at 5 p.m. on the first three Tuesdays of the month, but like August, September will actually have four Tuesdays, so there may be a fourth council meeting. So look out for that. In any case, you can follow along with our live coverage of each meeting at LBC Meeting Notes on Twitter. 
And don't forget when the council's off, we're on the air. So catch our show Friday and Sunday at 11 a.m. on KLBP 99.1 FM on the weeks that the council doesn't meet. Um, you can also listen to an archive of past episodes as well as this show on demand on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And as always, special thanks to our engineer, Gabe Ferales, the whole KLBP crew, and my co-host, Emma DiMaggio. The music by my colleague, Esther Kang. My name is Tim Flores. Take care.
quiet to work You lost my respect, but you're the jerk Fine-tuning in your head New circuits, sugar-coated Rework it Mechanic script smile, thanks for the pilot I don't binge the episodes I won't watch it Contradict my cheerfulness Do chill a bit Another bite of dust Only a human would quit
Thank you.